Hello and thank you for joining us for this special episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I am joined by my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. And special co-host Cassandra Kane. Hi. In this episode, we're going to discuss Robert Aldrich's 1962 gothic horror film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. My sister doesn't ever go out. She's um, not fit to receive visitors. Jane, I want to talk to you. I'm afraid I have bad news. We'll probably have to sell the house. You aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever going to leave it. And she's not getting any better. You mean Jane? I think she seems much better lately. I was cleaning the cage. The bird got up. You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. Now, we hadn't planned to do an episode of Baby Jane, but it's a film we'd always intended to profile at some point, and given the renewed interest in it thanks to Feud, we thought what better time to talk about it than now. Unfortunately, Cameron can't be with us this month as he's having a cyst on his ass excised, but I'm glad Cass, my sister, is here in his place, because we're going to be talking about one of the most bizarre sibling relationships ever committed to the screen. A movie in which two former cinematic giants reluctantly teamed up for what accidentally became a classic entry into psychological horror and heralded in a new subgenre. The trajectory of their fractious relationship is skillfully exploited in Feud, with Susan Sarandon as Betty Davis and Jessica Lange as Joan Crawford. But who were Joan Crawford and Betty Davis? Well, they were both born in 1908, although Betty Davis was quick to tell journalists that she was five years younger than Crawford. In the 30s, Crawford was the biggest property at Metro and Davis the biggest property at Warner Brothers. Crawford was always the movie star and Davis the actress. Crawford rallied against her impoverished background, Davis against her unconventional looks. Crawford was beautiful, Davis was talented. Crawford was known for her vanity and Davis for her lack of it. Crawford exemplified the great screen masochist and Davis the great screen villain. Crawford revered the illusion and idealism peddled by the Hollywood machine, while Davis strove to break through it. In many ways, they were diametrically opposed, and yet both women were doggedly ambitious, forfeited personal relationships in favour of their careers, raised children who wrote tell-all books about their deficiencies as mothers, and struggled in their autumnal years to remain relevant in an industry ready to dispose of them. They were professionals, actresses who knew their lines and showed up on time. And despite the fact that their respective movies had, at different times, kept their studios alive, by 1961 they couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. It was around this time that Joan Crawford brought director Robert Aldrich a book that she hoped could be adapted to reinvigorate her career. 
The book was Henry Farrell's 1960 novel Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. After Aldrich struggled to raise the shoestring budget, filming began on July 23, 1962 and was released three months later. Made under rapid B-movie conditions with a limited budget, the film had every reason to be a stinker, but it was an unqualified hit, becoming the 14th highest grossing film of 1962 and was nominated for five Academy Awards. It's now widely regarded as a genre classic and a fascinating mercurial snapshot of two feuding actresses in their last hurrah. The film has been parodied on Saturday Night Live and French and Saunders and had its own TV movie remake in 1991. The film's legacy resonates so strongly, in fact, that nearing the end of her life, Davis commented, 20 years after we had worked together and a half a dozen years after Crawford's death, we are still a team in the public's mind. Um, I think it's really interesting that you said 1908 for both of them because that's a huge point of conjecture when it comes to Joan Crawford is that she was probably born in 1904 or 5 or 6. But because it was obviously so difficult to get roles for women, the older they got, she kept putting, I guess, her birth date back. And because they weren't so fastidious about Mm. birth certificates... It's really hard. There's no real document of this is Joan Crawford's birth certificate. So they had that freedom to kind of chip off a few years or add a few. It's uh, it's actually something that goes on today in, in baseball. A lot of people who come from South and Central America who don't have documentation of birth will often shave a few years off of their, uh, I, I guess, when they were born, just so that they're a bit younger and they can demand a bigger contract, which I guess is the same kind of thing. There was also the line in Seinfeld... Yep. Do you know the one? With Kramer. No, there's the line uh, where George is um, buying Time magazine in the airport. Remember he says, but you are in those shackles. (laughs) I never never understood that until I saw Baby Jane. You're a blurb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. Even little lines like that have become, I mean, somebody who knows the movie, who sees that line on Seinfeld, will know immediately where that comes from. So it's pretty special how, how big this movie is in popular culture. It's such a simple film. There's not a lot that happens in it. And yet it goes for two and a quarter hours, which is quite a long time, especially for a horror movie. Mm. And yet it's the performances of Crawford and Davis that make it feel like you're just in and out in this movie. It's so quick and easy to watch. What do you think, Cass? I think it's funny that we keep talking about it as a horror film. Like, when I rewatched it, I struggle to think of it as a horror film. I just find it a complete tragedy. Like, I just found it very sad. I think it was marketed as a horror movie. Yeah, definitely. I guess in the wake of films like Psycho, where they're they're horror movies, but they're not horror movies in the way that the horror movies became in the 70s and 80s, which were kind of unrelenting. Mm, Yes, splatter films. They are far more psychological torment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just made me sad. So where do you think the root of the tragedy is in the film? Well... I kind of feel like when I was watching this, obviously you kind of watch it and what you take from it is a reflection of your own worldview or your own frame of reference. And for me, it's all her sort of nostalgia for what, you want to say her baby Jane, her nostalgia for what had been and how she can't bring herself back from that experience she had as a child and how much she craves it constantly in her current present time and just the way in which it's actually become a disorder for her yeah and she infantilizes herself by wearing those little 
girly curls and that little dress that, you know, is so inappropriate. And there's even a doll that's sitting there to constantly remind her that's who I am right now. Like that's, yeah. that's you know, it's just, I don't think it's and just she heartbreaking. Takes, she takes the bow off of the doll's hair and puts it on her own and starts singing. She starts to hear the doll in her head. Mm. And then when she touches the doll, the doll stops singing and she kind of smiles at it like, oh, you want me to take over now? It's really strange and and un, a very surreal and very dark. And I don't know why, but I found Baby Jane's story so much sadder than Blanche, even though they're probably equally as tragic. But it's something about how the film focused on the Betty Davis character that I think just made that one much more front and centre. Yeah, I think Blanche's story gets really sad um, at a certain point in the third act of the film when <clears throat> she needs to eat and it's gone beyond um, baby Jane deliberately not f- feeding her to baby Jane not realising she needs to eat because she says it a few times and baby Jane just misses it. Yeah, it washes like, over her. Yeah, like she doesn't understand that she's dying and that she needs food. She's she's forgotten. And she starts off quite cunning and quite calculating. You know, she's working out how she's going to get the house, how she's going to get her act on the road. Oh, I'm going to get rid of Blanche. That should take about a week or so, she Mm. says to Buono. But then by the end of the film, she's kind of not calculating at all. There's some point where it switches and she's no longer the cunning. She's kind of is the child. Yeah, her mental deterioration hits a certain point where she's no longer able to care for anyone, even herself. And you're right, it's a very sad film. I think the scene that got her nominated for the Oscar, apart from the very last scene, was the scene where she sees herself in the mirror, yeah, and puts her hands up and she has that guttural howl that comes out of her mouth, seeing the reality of what's happened to her face. And there's something in that moment that is so touching. I mean, this this demented woman that you should should hate, you know, but you don't. Um, Davis gives her a humanity and it's really amazing. And even Blanche's role is definitely living in the past i mean you can see her face change when she gets she hears that one of the neighbors has watched one of her movies mm, which just like 20 up. years 30 oh, years yeah. old which is but probably yeah. what you feel like joan Crawford would have been like of course <laughs> but you know a few reviewers at the time said you've got betty davis walking around going yeah yeah like that like she's just totally like a garbage woman and then you've got joan Crawford doing the grand lady thing oh yes ah la la but a lot of people i think the contrast was a bit unflattering for Crawford at the time because people were like well here's Davis giving us something real gritty and real and Crawford's still doing the grand lady thing Britt thinks we'll probably have to sell the house why should we have to sell the house Blanche well that's what I'm trying to tell you our uh, financial position is such that we just uh, we can't afford to got plenty of money invested I know yes yes that's quite true but Some of those investments aren't paying much. When did our business manager tell you all this? Early last week, I think. He didn't call here last week. I know that, too. No, we we didn't actually speak on the telephone. He, um, he wrote me a letter. He didn't write you any letter, either. There hasn't been a letter from his office. Yes, Jane, there has. Oh, you're a liar. You're just a liar. You always were. Bird Hanley never wrote you any letter and never called you on the phone telling you to sell the house. You called him four weeks ago and told him to sell it. But watching the film now in retrospect, I think both performances are truly remarkable. Yeah, they are. And also, in real life, Betty Davis was so 
felt so shunned by that Oscar loss for mm. Baby Jane. I mean, she was talking about it 20 years later. Yeah. And she she still said she needed to be the first. I needed to be the first to get to three. Mm. And, uh, I mean, the importance of the Hollywood system to her is evident just in how how much value she placed on an Academy Award. Which is unexpected in the stories you hear about Betty Davis, yeah, that yeah. she would care at all you... about an awards show. But I think also what you mean by that is that she was a working actress. Yeah. She cared about the work. And it is strange. It seems like Crawford would be far more... Attached. To awards and recognition. But Betty Davis, yeah, her whole approach was always kind of like, what's the job? What do I need to do? Get in, do it, get out sort of thing. That's how at least she presented. I think also you've got to think about it in terms of when it happened. It happened at a point where she was doing television. She Mm. wasn't getting offered roles anymore. Yeah. I mean, both women, especially if you look at Feud, really highlights the fact that both women realised this was their last leg. And their rest of their careers were either going to, you know, sink or float on whether or not whatever happened to Baby Jane was a success. So, I mean, I think for, you know, they they keep saying in Feud, oh, this will give me a few more years. Mm. So therefore, she's realistic about what the Oscar will give her. And you know what? It probably would have. Because after whatever happened to Baby Jane, she kind of went back to doing B pictures and television movies and a lot of TV shows. If she'd won that Oscar, there might have been more opportunities for Davis. She might have had a few more years where she was offered some A pictures and really able to, like, do some good work. There was never a rivalry like theirs. For over half a century, they hated each other, and we loved them for it. They only ever made one film together. Whatever happened to Baby Jane. I'll get you the perfect co-star. What do you have in mind? Betty, I promise you this is going to be the greatest horror movie ever made. Why this picture? We feel like Crawford and Davis may be a little long in the tooth. Why don't we go just a little bit younger? You want me to work with her again? Are you crazy? Never! Never again! Care to comment on the fact that Miss Crawford says you look old enough to be her mother? you got to keep them at each other's throats. You have to. Lose the shoulder pads. I beg your pardon. Cut back on the lipstick. You're playing a recluse who hasn't seen the sun for 20 years, for Christ's sake. I might have something, but you didn't hear it from me. Blind item, my specialty. You are just trying to throw me. I'm trying to help you. I don't want to end up a joke, Bob. You won't let me look ridiculous. Of course not. Pure, naked rancor. I love it. I want more. are about pain. And action. Oh, I barely touched oh, her. Did you get it? What were your guys' thoughts about Feud? Because, I mean, obviously when we're only six episodes in, uh, we've had the, what I think is the centerpiece episode, which is the Oscar... <laughs> the Crawford Oscar Revenge episode, which was really great. But what were your, what did you, what do you think of the show, and what are the surprises for you? Because you both people who know Davis and Crawford's work pre-feud, so I'm just wondering what, how you came at it. Feud is like a gift sent from heaven <laughs> for gay no, men no, everywhere. No, nobody's nobody's going to know this, but 
Betty Davis is pretty much my favourite actress, and I think Joan Crawford is pretty much Luke's favourite actress. <laughs> For them to create a TV show about these two actresses in this movie that we love, and say, here you go, here's an eight-episode TV show, and it stars Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon, <laughs> who we both love, and it's like just saying, here's a show for you for all of the gays on the planet. And who the hell would have thought that this TV show would be made? Yeah. Amazing. I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Um, and, yeah, I think um, the way Susan and Jessica play off each other is just perfect. Like, it only took me maybe a minute to kind of get past, okay, that's Susan Sarandon and that's Jessica Lang, and then I was fully with it. And I just, yeah, I think it's such a rare insight into a such a niche part mm. of that era. And- Absolutely. Yeah. Um, actually, Ryan Murphy, I've heard him say, look, I have really unusual interests. You know, Ryan Murphy's gay. And um, he's like, I had no interest really in the OJ trial when I started that, but I had a real interest in this. And he loved Betty Davis. He wrote her a fan letter when he was 10 years old. And, and- he had an interview with her which was supposed to go 15 minutes and end up going four hours. Yep. And yeah. she met him after her chemotherapy because she had cancer at the time. And she did the full number dressed up for him and everything. And she started writing to him when he was 10. She wrote, Ryan, you're sweet, bet. And then they just started this correspondence. And he never got to meet Joan Crawford, but he said he would have loved to. So it was a real labour of love for him, this show. And it's a real personal interest that he's got to... And that's what it is. It's just so exciting and crazy that there's this show out there right now. I read Feud. I read every Betty Davis Joan Crawford biography I could get my hands on. I've seen every film that I could. And then suddenly this show comes along. Most people who are watching Feud will not have seen Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and will not know who Betty Davis and Joan Crawford really are. They wouldn't have actually seen the women. I was the same as you, Cass. It took me a few minutes to kind of go because I know the Crawford and David face and mannerism so well. I had to do an adjustment because they don't put on a bunch of prosthetics and really labour the point of trying to look like these women. Uh, and, and But once you get over it, it's really rewarding. Okay. And how fun was it to see them recreate the actual scenes from the film? Yeah, and, and not only from Baby Jane, but also from their previous movies. Like All About but, Eve, seeing her come down the stairs. Yeah. And we had what well, Autumn Leaves and uh, Straight Jackets. Yeah. yeah, and they're just in little snippets. here and there, place her out. But, uh, you know, that's how it tells the history of these characters. And I love that it's got Joan Blondell, Olivia de Havilland, Robert Aldrich, Mm. uh, William Castle, uh, Frank Sinatra. It keeps bringing in all these little people that you know from that era. It's interesting knowing that Ryan Murphy was, it sounds like, had a, um, a bias towards Betty Davis in some way. Like, that was his first love if you will, but I feel like the show centres more on the Joan Crawford character in some way. I think it definitely has, yeah. I mean, there's been episodes where you barely see Betty Davis. I don't know, Joan Crawford was a little more available so that, you know, there's maybe a little bit more history out there. know more about her. Yeah, and so they're able to focus on her a little bit more. I think as well Joan Crawford was more complex. I think the show has to work harder to explain her. Yeah, that's true. I was saying to Cass, because we were talking about it, we, we, we had a binge feud night yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And we were talking about how, you know, Betty Davis always had this really supportive, strong mother who was with her until she was, like, in her 50s. Yeah. Joan Crawford had nothing. Yeah. And Joan Crawford was really fucked up. You know, she was crazy. Betty Davis was a truth teller. She was hard as brass, but she was what you saw was what you got. Crawford was this kind of mixture of contradictions really generous but then also you know allegedly abusive but self-serving in her generosity like in some ways very and putting up this appearance and this front always 
playing the grand lady. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the show has to work a little harder to justify Crawford. Davis doesn't, or so far in the show, hasn't really done anything where you'd go, oh, what a complete evil She's bitch. easier to relate to than Crawford, probably for your average person. Well, yes. you feel like Davis is yeah, being honest yeah. in everything that she does. Yeah. Um, and, and Crawford is being a little bit dishonest, disingenuine. Mm. Yeah, disingenuous. Hmm. Mm. Disingenuine. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Use English, Damien. It's almost like the true Joan Crawford was more like Baby Jane in some ways internally about than Betty Davis was. I think so you know too, I mean? in terms of latching on to former glory. Yes. Even though the Blanche Hudson had that same yearning as well, it's just um, expressed differently through the baby, or more obviously through the Baby Jane character. It's so funny because I don't think the roles could have been reversed in the movie, though. Agree. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is watch Straight Jacket to know that Crawford does not have the, the acting capacity to play Baby Jane. Yeah, Crawford's always better when she underplays. When when Crawford mm. is given room to overplay, like when she was in Straightjacket with William Castle, who basically just said, "Oh my God, I've got Crawford. Do what you want." Crazy, yeah. yeah, that's that that scene that uh, performance wasn't modulated at all. Mm. So you know she lets fire, and it comes across ridiculous. Mm. God, you got that wrong. Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. Frantic woman pressured by straitjacket tension. Leave me alone! You let go of me! Listen to me! Just call me Lucy. I wouldn't like my little girl to think I was trying to take her fellow away from her. Carol and Michael are going to be married! And nobody's gonna stop it! Davis didn't need that as much. She could modulate the performance herself. She had much stronger instincts as an actress than Crawford did. Mm. I don't think there's too many people who would argue that Crawford was a better actress than Davis. But definitely for you being a fan of Crawford, I think it comes down more to her personality in her movies than it does to whether or not she was a better actress. Because I think quite clearly Betty Davis is a much better actress than Joan Crawford was. I mean, look, Crawford, if I were to give someone a a film to say this is the best Crawford is and can do, I'd give them Mildred Pierce uh, or Possessed or uh, even Sudden Fear. She, you know, Mildred Pierce is such a restrained performance. There were times where Michael Curtis would make her do a scene 20 times until she had lost all of her energy and he would use the 20th take because she'd essentially just be reciting the lines. So, you know, it wasn't her impulse to do that. Davis was a far more naturalistic actress on screen. What's your, what is well, your no, opinion of Joan Crawford? You, you, you really, is this a gag question? Or, I mean, you want me to say something vile about her? No, let me tell you something very interesting. There were never two more opposed actresses working together in the world. Uh, just total, totally different people and systems. But I will say this for Miss Crawford. She is a professional. She is always on time. She knows her lines. And we made Jane, you know, in three weeks, Joan and I. Three weeks. Because that is all the money anybody would give for us. Because whenever Mr. Aldrich went to anybody for backing for this, they say, those two old broads, never. But we should talk briefly about this whole idea of psycho bitty and this subgenre that whatever happened to Baby Jane created. Because it's, it's an interesting thing that lasted about 10 years. So what happened with whatever happened to Baby Jane? They had these two old broads, as Betty Davis called them, 
uh, and they thought, okay, well, they're, they're past the point where we can make them look good. And aren't they also only in their 50s? Only in their 50s, yeah. <laughs> they both look like they're about 120 in the film because <laughs> of the lighting and all the added wrinkles and everything. And uh, also the lack of Botox yeah. available yes, at the time. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of advantages these days. Yeah. But rather than just go, well, let's have them play women who look middle-aged because that's not good enough. If they can't look beautiful, we have to make them look hideous. We have to turn them into a different kind of circus. And that's what Whatever Happened to Baby Jane does. It just brings out every wrinkle, every, you know, saggy, withered contour on their face. And it works so well for horror. And it's really curious because after Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, we had a slew of them. We had Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, What's the Matter with Helen, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, Lady in a Cage, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Die Die My Darling. Crawford ended up making Straight Jacket, I Saw What You Did in Berserk, and Davis went on to make Dead Ringer, The Nanny, and The Anniversary. Mm. So it just became this really big money spinner. Some the funniest your... title there is Who Slew Auntie Rue? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that was with uh, Shelley Winters, who made uh-huh. two of these films. They call it Psycho Biddy, Guanguinol, um Grand Dame Guignol, which I assume is named after there was a there was a theatre in Paris uh, called the Grand Guignol, which played horror right. plays, and it closed in 1962, funnily enough, oh. after being open since the 1800s. Right. So I don't know, I assume, I assume the name came from that. And another name for it is Hagsploitation. So all of these films, narratively, they usually contain a former movie queen uh, as a mentally unhinged or dangerous older woman with a glamorous past who spends her days succumbing to addiction and psychological disease. She lives in relative wealth but is bitterly lonely, often delusional. She's obsessed with her glory days and has a naive childlike obsession with the past. She's an abusive and often frightening character, um, often torturing other characters in the film. Her victims are often women, and they're often blood relatives. And by the end of the film, she's either completely mad or dead. And that basically runs through all of these kinds of films. So why? Why Why did this take off? Why was it of interest to people? And was it wrong? There's a really good podcast out there that if you haven't listened to, it's called You Must Remember This. And they did a series called Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. And one of the episodes was on Baby Jane and Betty Davis. And it deals a lot with uh, the idea that there were these two actresses, uh, particularly Crawford, also to a lesser extent Davis. But Crawford was one of two women who went from the silent era into talking films and had a long lasting career. And the other one was Barbara Stanwyck. And then there was Betty Davis, who started in 1930, and she was still around, you know, into her mid-50s at the start of the 1960s. And so they had these two people who are at an age that Hollywood had never had to deal with when it came to women. So while a lot of people failed to make that transition and they retired quite early, like Norma Shearer and Greta Garbo, Crawford was still there and she was that's that same kind of starlet but she was aging and they needed something to do with her so but what they did was nothing they just stopped getting roles altogether so essentially and feud shows this really well they had to create their own role and we're a couple of years removed from psycho and there's a new wave of horror movies being made in England by Hammer Studios so horror is really gaining traction at this time as well and funnily enough Uh, Davis would later collaborate at Hammer with The Nanny. So Joan pitches this horror novel to the director of one of her recent successes who hasn't had another recent success 
and it stars Joan Crawford and Betty Davis who aren't getting roles and she's taking it to Warner Brothers who keep losing money so it works for all of the parties involved at the time. Baby Jane really is the start of this whole movement. Uh, It was successful and I think it's successful exactly for the reason that Jack Warner says in Feud which is the degradation of the star and that you can see someone who is Hollywood royalty being degraded on screen, that you like to see your heroes cut down. I think that's where the success of this movie comes from and this whole movement comes from. All of these movies seem to have Oscar-winning actresses in them. Lady in a Cage and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte had Olivia de Havilland in there. I just I like to think that it goes beyond just a kind of a cruel impulse to see these two women cut down. I think... Look, it's a gothic horror film, and the old face is a frightening figure. You know, these women kind of wear their, their impending death on their face. You know, they they the film exploit, exploits the idea of the white withered gaunt face of an elderly person as a fearful figure. And you know, we've got we've got. I mean, don't look now. Hinges in that last scene where that woman turns around, this ghastly face. Or Poltergeist 2, you've got that really old, frightening man that, that's constantly there, and that's really the most memorable part of the film. It is just a knee-jerk, instinctive thing to have a fearful reaction of someone who's old and tattered and sagging. and there There is just a knee-jerk frightfulness to it. Now, the film exploits that. Whether or not that's right or wrong, I don't know. I think the thing that's really important to consider with Baby Jane and I guess the films that followed, but to a lesser extent, is that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford went into this film knowing what they were doing. They, Betty Davis made creative choices to wear that makeup and to look that psychotic and to put that voice on and to play that character in that way. And Joan Crawford, she, I mean, she wouldn't have laid down basically in a state of near paralysis for anything. You know, she did it because it was a film that she believed in. So these actresses still had control over their roles. And it's it, they're, they're fully embracing this idea that they're playing this completely different against type role in a movie that is a horror movie, something that neither of them had really done to that point. They, we- they'd all done kind of thrillers and horrific things in some of their movies, so I think it probably came naturally to them. But if they had a choice, don't you think they would have rather played a glamorous type? Absolutely. It's out of desperation. What do you think, Cass? Like, as a woman, how does all of this sort of conversation... Well, I haven't seen a lot of the films that followed that you guys are talking about in terms of the psycho-bitty trend, but I imagine most of them aren't as good as whatever happened to Baby Jane. And so part of me sort of thinks that they're... They're actually making that kind of old, fragile female figure into a powerful figure, and that's a choice that they've made, is to actually amp it up, to play it so well that it's not camp. And I know we haven't talked about camp yet, but I've always had him. I just couldn't follow that this would be considered a campy film. They've had a sort of, gosh, like it's so not. Um, but, yeah, my sense is that it's, that it's actually really strong because both the actresses are so strong so they could carry it and make it believable. But it is also making them quite powerful and not playing a sort of meek or meagre that's interesting. So you, you see it as, in a way, it's kind of empowering because the characters are given real dimensionality and are these giant hurrah figures. So complex, yet nothing, had, I imagine, you know, people hadn't seen that before, really. You know, um, it, it, people had already been quite small or fragile or weak, whereas this it, was quite strong. Jane, I'm just trying to explain to you how things really are. You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. Watch your arm! 
Lance, you are in that chair. And tell me, what are these awful things I'm supposed to be doing to you? Well, I... I, I meant... You wouldn't have to work so hard. Whatever happened to Baby Jane is, uh, in a lot of ways, it kind of exemplifies the type that each woman had been really, really good at playing previously. So I kind of just for fun went through and remembered all of Joan Crawford's masochist roles and all of Betty Davis's bitch roles and just wrote brief things about some of the ridiculous things that happen in these films. So I'm just going to read them to you. So let's do Crawford the masochist first. So in A Woman's Face, she plays a disfigured woman who is convinced by her lover to kill an eight-year-old boy by pushing him off a ski lift so that her lover will inherit the fortune. In The Damn Don't Cry, she is horrifically bashed almost to death by a mob boss. In Mildred Pierce, she is victimised by her spoilt sociopathic daughter who ultimately seduces her mother's boyfriend. In Possessed, she's a schizophrenic haunted by the ghost of her former patient. In Autumn Leaves, she is tortured by her manic depressive boyfriend. And in Sudden Fear, she discovers that her husband and his mistress are going to kill her one weekend. It's amazing that given all of that, she never was a Hitchcock actress. (laughs) Well, interestingly, I did read somewhere Hitchcock was originally being considered for whatever happened to baby Jane. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure if that's true or if that's just a bit of gossip. It makes sense, though, that in 1960 he'd be attracted to that kind of property. All right, now, Betty Davis, the bitch. So in A Human Bondage, she's a cockney self-entitled bitch who destroys her lover. In Mr. Skeffington, she is a vain fool obsessed with her appearance. In In This Our Life, she commits a hit-and-run against a mother and child and frames a black man for the crime. In the letter, she's a sociopathic adulterer. In The Little Foxes, she sits by and watches her husband have a heart attack with no expression on her face while they're enjoying tea. And, of course, in Baby Jane, she beats and starves her invalid sister as she mentally erodes before our eyes. So, I mean, we, they come to this film with all of that history in the audience's mind. <laughs> sure how aware people would have been in the 1960s of a lot of this history between Davis and Crawford but Davis had a knack for turning down roles that would get Academy Award nominations or wins and obviously Mildred Pierce was one of them she was offered Mildred Pierce and what was it she didn't want to be the mother of a teenage daughter so she didn't want to be portrayed as somebody who was in her 40s even though she would have been in her 40s or late 30s at least at the time Um, And she also turned down the lead in The African Queen (laughs) because she didn't want to shoot it anywhere other than a back lot at Warner Brothers. She didn't (laughs) want to go to Africa. That movie would have lost a lot of its cachet if it had been shot on a Warner Brothers back lot. But can you imagine Betty Davis in the role with Humphrey Bogart? I mean, I love Betty Davis, but Catherine Hepburn in in that movie is just... She owns it. She does. But it's also their relationship. The two actors. They have such amazing chemistry in that movie. Davis was in a movie called The Star, and that movie was written by an ex-friend of Crawford's and loosely based on Crawford's career. A very unflattering portrait of Crawford. Very unflattering portrait, and apparently that came around because this friend sent their daughter to Joan Crawford's house so that Joan, who was a friend, could talk their daughter out of marrying a man that they didn't want her to marry. And instead of talking her out of marrying this man, she held the wedding, (laughs) didn't invite the parents and called the priest and the whole wedding was in that house and then called the parents and said, no, she's married that man. So this person wrote this movie, The Star, this screenplay, The Star, which, uh, of course, 
Betty Davis took the lead role in and got an Oscar nomination for that. And there were all kinds of little moments. Apparently, one time, Joan Crawford walked into a room and took the spotlight off of Betty Davis at a party, and Davis never forgave her for that. Then there was Francho Tone. You know, he was obviously a husband of Crawford's, and apparently Davis had tried to get onto him. There were all these silly, stupid little reasons why this kind of feud developed. But, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane would never have come to Davis without Crawford. Davis would never have had the nomination without Crawford. She never would have had this, you know, second, third wave of her career without Crawford. Granted, Crawford then... She might have had an Oscar without Crawford. Yeah. So, I mean, all I'm saying is that there were... You're painting Joan in a very positive light here. Oh, well, no, I mean, look, she ultimately, any good that she did, she undid. But initially, she was generous in the way that she did this. I mean, she gave Davis a second chance. I think that if uh, Betty Davis had been more open to some of Joan's advances, they could have been friends. But I guess how much were they playing into the idea that the perception of them being enemies was helping them? In their uh, originally, yeah. possibly, yeah. But also that's what's explored in Feud, the idea that it was became part of their brand. I mean, there was definitely bad blood between Jack Warner and Betty Davis uh, after she took him to court. Mm. And so for him to get Joan Crawford at Warner Brothers and then start giving a lot of the roles that would have gone to Betty Davis to Joan Crawford, that, that would have definitely driven a, a huge wedge between them. I mean, it was the studio system that did it anyway. They, yeah. they, I mean, women couldn't be friends back then, really, could they? Because they were all competing for the same roles. And I'm sure there were a lot of people in the industry like Hedda Hopper and Robert Aldrich who really did help to manufacture this feud and were glad for it, glad for the free publicity. What do you want this time? Who was on the telephone? None of your business. What were you ringing for? I'm hungry, Jane. Well, of course you're hungry. You didn't eat your dinner. That's why you're hungry. But you forgot my breakfast. I didn't forget your breakfast. I didn't bring your breakfast because you didn't eat your dinner. You mentioned earlier about how you don't see this as a campy film. I'm wondering, what does camp mean for you? Well, camp for me means you're not really suspending your disbelief. Like, you're watching it and you always know that it's making fun of itself or it's not taking itself seriously. It's there to make you kind of laugh or look in intrigue. My personal experience of the film was that I was very inside the film and I found it very believable, very tragic, like I said. And I could really relate, especially to the Betty Davis character, not so much to the Joan Crawford one. That's why it just didn't marry up for me that this would be considered camp. I looked into camp because I don't really understand camp, to be honest, but the way you just said it is perfect. It kind of is self-aware. It's not dedicated to its content. It sort of knows it's playing a joke. And and throughout this film, the film's quite serious-minded. Everything that happens in it, you know, you believe the dead rat was served. You believe that Blanche is being tortured. You you believe Baby Jane's mental deterioration. It's not stepping away from itself. I read for this episode Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp, which was written in 1964 and which is largely regarded as perhaps the best essay written about camp. And she says that camp is a sensibility, it's not an idea, which is, comes around to the idea that camp isn't really concerned so much with content. It's, content. it's a sensibility, it's about style. And what camp does is it converts the serious into the frivolous. Well, that's not what Baby Jane does. Mm-hmm. The essence of camp, she writes, is the love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. It's a mode of aestheticism that's decorative and flamboyant. Nothing in nature can be campy. Camp is largely sexless, it's androgynous. 
Uh, Sontag talks about how Betty Davis, as a great stylist of temperament and mannerism, imbibes the spirit of camp. She cites examples of camp as Art Nouveau pieces, Tiffany lamps, the ballet Swan Lake. She even cites in terms of film the Maltese Falcon as camp because of the effortless smooth way in which its tone is maintained. Opposing that, she would argue that All About Eve isn't camp because it's too slick and beat the devil too hysterical. Pure camp is naive. That is, there isn't any intention for it to be camp. It just turns out camp. So it's always kind of born out of innocence. Mm. Now, there's certain elements of, of Davis's performance that have campy qualities. So the exaggerated makeup and the the typical Betty Davis mannerisms and that. So there's an object in the film that you could argue is campy. The film itself as a whole, I don't think, I think it's very drab, very serious-minded, very modest. There's a homeliness to it. There's nothing really in it that you would, that I, I can see that, that would make it a camp film. I think that's sort of a, a long-standing misconception about the film. I think uh, it comes down to the three genres that really elicit a physical reaction rather than a cerebral reaction, and that horror, comedy, and adult movies. Those are, I guess, difficult to distinguish sometimes from camp or schlock or something that has less value because you you generally, I guess, you don't have a cerebral reaction to it. You, You have a physical reaction to it. And that's always working against those genres, which is why it's remarkable that Baby Jane got as many Oscar nominations as it did and that Betty Davis was taken so seriously, later became embraced by the gay community and that Crawford and Davis were gay icons and that, you know, now there's drag versions of Baby Jane out there. I mean, that that all adds to the idea that it's, it, was, it was a camp movie. But I think Crawford especially underplays her role. Yeah. But the movie itself is a really strong psychological journey into torment and dementia. And I mean, it's not easy to watch. and It's not enjoyable to watch. Which is why I think people turn it into camp. Mm. Because it's easier to yeah. reason with why she does what she does is, oh, that's just being ridiculous. Like and a safety actually, mechanism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's actually so sad that that's that's what that actually looks like and if you just watch it for what it is then you kind of I think can really feel what the emotion of the film is oh I wish daddy could be here right now you can never lose your talent he used to tell me you can lose everything else but you can't lose your talent I think one of the saddest scenes is when um she opens the door and sees Edwin yep and Mm. she's disappointed he's not this charming thin dashing man He's disappointed that she's not this beautiful ingenue. But they both just go, okay, we're going to keep playing this fantasy. Well, we're going to come in and sip, sip high tea. He's going to pretend to be a stuffy English uh, mm. piano musical genius. She's going to pretend to be this, you know, great star, great talent, beautiful, desired woman. And they both kind of overlook the other's shortcomings because they're kind of aware of their own. But that also comes down to they both want something out of this. Betty Davis is never... Baby Jane is never going to be a star again. She can't sing. She's She's gone completely crazy. And Edwin, really, he just wants money. And he's forced into this by his mother, who's now what, taking another six months off of work. And I think they're really detestable characters, both of them. And one of the most stunning moments in the film is when he goes upstairs and sees her and he mm. says, she's dying. And all of the illusions and all of the fantasies and the whole high tea thing 
just kind of evaporates out of his eyes. He's suddenly struck with the hardness of reality. Don't you find that scene where he's in the wheelchair funny? Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> when she screams? So bizarre. It's such a psycho moment. Yeah. That, that scene. I love the scene as well where Betty Davis is like, he hates me. She's just like a little kid. Do you like um, playing the Betty Davis lines? I love like saying them. Really... <laughs> but it's interesting, though, that she would want any validate. I mean, she her whole character is seeking validation all the time, right? So whenever she's outside of the house, it's always who is looking at me, who thinks I'm good. And But what's interesting is when she and Edwin are having that chat in the room that's like all preserved with the piano and the music and everything is like she's you know 12 years old again um and he's talking about how he's a serious musician who writes serious music which is actually quite offensive to her but it just kind of like she's just like no you know it just washes (laughs) over her and she does her performance in front of the mirror I always find it hilarious how then he goes to the mirror and she's like clicks the light off yeah you know, it's like nobody else can have the spotlight but me like, I love that bit where she says that uh, daddy was a musician yeah he played the piano and the banjo the banjo <laughs> so what does he say about it being a national American uh, yeah no, Native American Native instrument. American instrument I think that, see that's why I thought and Cass we talked about it earlier and I said did you think of it as a dark comedy and you went no I just found it really sad and yeah. hearing your point of view I can totally see that but maybe because I've I, I must watch this film every year yeah. so now there are parts that I look out for because they're really funny to me bit of levity to the whole yeah. thing I think Blanche's story is never funny I mean that no, is no other than the fact that Joan Crawford cannot allow you to guess what she's thinking like her mm. face is so overly <laughs> expressive that there's got to be no room for like <laughs> there's no ambiguity I think there's a great line of um, dialogue in there where she says if the accident had never occurred you wouldn't be doing these awful things and it sounds like it's an insult it sounds like she's saying you wouldn't be doing these awful things to me and then Betty Davis turns around and says well what do you mean awful things or something like that mm. and Joan says well you wouldn't have to look after me. You wouldn't have to cook me dinner each day. And it really turns that around because from one second you think this is a real insult and then the next second you you feel like she's saying something really nice to her. You wouldn't have to wait on me hand and foot. And what you sort of touched on there that I feel like I haven't seen explored so much with this film is the whole dynamics of a carer relationship. Mm. Do you know what I mean? The fact that their siblings, Betty Davis' life has become to look after her crippled sister. And now we know a lot about how that can impact a relationship and that just, I think, gives it this whole undercurrent of sadness. There are several references throughout the movie that Blanche makes. So if, if, you know, the accident hadn't happened and Betty Davis says, oh, stop talking about that. I don't want to talk about that because she believes that she's responsible. Yeah, so she has the guilt. The fact that that's not actually guilt that she should be holding mm. is, uh, I mean, that makes her really quite sad. And if you're told that you've done something horrible then you start to play the part that's imposed mm. upon so you. Prophecy, yeah. yeah, so I mean, if, if she genuinely believed, well, I, I crashed you, I crippled you, I ran away, I was found in, a, in an actor's house drunk, God, I thought I was a nice person, but I mustn't be. So there's and that, that opens the doors for you to do really anything, to become uh, anything. And that sort of links in with, so we know that people who are in caring positions often have depression. And in that era, she, her depression was coming out in alcoholism, which she'd had before, but this obviously, like, exacerbated that issue. And then that coupled with her nostalgia or delusions of grandeur, mentality, psychological disorder, just kind of all culminates, I think, into her actions in the film. Yeah, and eventually kind of destroys her altogether. I mean, by the end of the film, she needs a carer. 
I hit the gates. I snapped my spine. when you know in that famous last line you mean we could have been friends just kind of i think shows how different things could have been heartbreaking that line is heartbreaking but also just the childlike simplicity of it the idea that she would simplify the complexity of this relationship into well for her it was like oh well if i hadn't believed i'd done that there wouldn't i wouldn't have this resentment and this self-hatred that has kind of turned me into what i am i mean crawford says i made you ugly Mm. i even did that uh now look whether or not you know that is completely responsible for what betty davis has become i doubt it no i mean there's certainly at the start of the movie baby jane is a little bitch you want to slap her and that night the 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 crash occurred on joan blanche says to jane that you'd been so awful to me at the party you'd been making jokes and making people laugh at Mm. me I mean, there was obviously something there beforehand. Mm. I mean, she's not completely blameless. Well, sibling rivalry's been a thing Mm. since the dawn of celebrity. We've even got it now, you know what I mean? I don't know, the Jacksons or the Olsen sisters or whomever, whatever. Mm. But I guess it kind of represents that in that era. And really? the fact, it's interesting because in the beginning, I will never forget. Do you remember how Joan Crawford is the little girl and she looks as suddenly quite villainous? Yes. (laughs) And then you catch up to them at this day and age and she's got her sister in her contracts. So it's, you almost sort of expect, oh, she's going to really, like, have revenge on baby Jane when she finally makes it. But instead she's actually going out of her way to look after her. So but it's an interesting switch. But is the I'll never forget evidenced by the fact that she put her in the contract to make movies or is it evidenced by the fact that she crashed the car into her? Well, she would never have meant to cripple herself and make her sister a carer. Of course not. But she had, by moving that car, meant to, I, I assume, cripple or kill yeah. her yeah. sister, which is probably what that I'll Never Forget was about. What's wonderful about the film is that there's love on both sides and hate on both sides, Mm. and the film doesn't try to reconcile them. Mm. It's happy for these women to be conflicted. Well, because they're so alike. So much of their drivers are exactly the same. It's just their expression of their nostalgia and their expression of their depression that's different. Yeah. One is the sadist and one is the masochist. But it's all from the same impulse. Yes. What do you think of uh, Robert Aldrich as a director and his job here? Every time I watch it, I'm always surprised by the formalism and the simplicity of the film. There's only real one embellishment, and that's the wheelchair scene. There's uh, three shots. One of them is that wheelchair shot, which really stands out. Another one is uh, the sense of space that he and the suspense that he creates when Blanche throws the note out to the neighbour, and then Betty Davis comes home a little bit too soon. You know, Blanche isn't looking as the paper's picked up, but then it cuts back to it. We know that Betty Davis has picked up that piece of paper, but we don't know at what point she's going to um, show Blanche that she knows what was written on that note. And so it creates this great sequence of suspense in there. And also a really simple shot the first time Elvira visits the house. Jane comes down the stairs with the plate of food and walks towards the kitchen and just looks kind of disdainfully at Elvira. And Elvira starts going up the stairs and Jane is going into the kitchen, which is just past the stairs and off to the left. And she turns around, she's looking at the camera as Elvira starts going up the stairs, just kicks the door open with a foot from behind her. And I, it's a really great shot. You get this um, 
kind of idea of what both of those women are about at that point. Jane hates this and she does it so casually and carelessly she kicks the door. So you get that impression whereas Elvira seems, I guess, worried at that point that something's happened to Blanche. So she's she's the caring person. She's the person that's going to help Blanche. And it's all just done with physicality. There's no dialogue. Yeah, that's right. Aldrich actually did a really good job with this movie and he probably doesn't get the credit he deserves. I agree. And it's taken a while for this film to receive the kind of acclaim that it, it deserves. It's taken many, many years. You know, the hype had to die down. The interest in the feud had to die down. And now we're kind of reaching a point where we can actually look at this film objectively. And it's quite well done. I mean, the scene where Joan Crawford is trying to inch down the staircase and that's intercut with Betty Davis going on one of her little drives. That scene is essentially replicated in Misery. You know, as Paul Sheldon unlocking the door and then getting out and looking for a phone, seeing that there's no mechanism in the phone. When she comes home and she sees Crawford on the phone and Crawford's great in that moment where she stops even talking in words, like that. And then you've got Betty Davis and the camera's looking up at her and those eyes are just burning out of her face as she's beating this woman. It's terrifying violence. You don't actually see anything. It's not graphic. But the intensity of her hate and her expression and the way it's photographed feels like it's coming at you, like the movie is towering over you. All right, Blanche Hudson! This big, fat movie star! This rotten, stinking actress! Press a button, ring a bell, and you think the whole damn world comes running, don't you? They were Hollywood's greatest stars. By the 50s, their bitter rivalry was legendary. And in 1962, when they needed each other most, things got vicious. Feud obviously takes the juicy elements of the myth and, and presents them as fact. We don't know how much of that stuff really happened. In, I've read a lot of different biographies and there's a lot of conjecture about exactly how much of that kind of silliness went on. And it contradicts how much Betty Davis is so um, adamant that they were both so professional on set. Oh, and you must remember this. Apparently she did a lot of research into trying to find out anything that would verify those stories and couldn't find anything. That's right. Yeah. Sean Considine's book, Feud, The Divine Feud, mm. uh, it's a, such an entertaining read, but it, a lot of what's presented in that book, ultimately, I've, I've kind of have reservations about the same way that I do about whether or not really the abuse was as bad as it's purported to be in Mummy Dearest. It's, it's a good commodity. Yeah. There's a lot of money to be made from it. So, you know, you would be a fool to take everything at its word. I mean, just like Christina Crawford had so many motives to make Mummy Dearest juicier, to make Crawford that bit more abusive, you know? I mean, okay, so maybe she um, she was definitely not Mother of the Year, but did she really try to strangle her daughter to death? I don't know. I find that hard to believe, that she would have physically tried to strangle her daughter to death. So, yeah, you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. It's good fun. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter. You know, the, the movie doesn't need it. The movie's entertaining enough. It's our time 
to have wage equality once and for all and equal rights for women in the United States of America. I wanted to mention about ageism for women. It's become such a hot button issue. It kind of came into the spotlight when Patricia Arquette made her speech at the 2015 Oscars. And of course, an initial reaction was, for God's sakes, you're making millions of dollars. What are you whinging about? I don't really know a great deal about it, but I just picked some interesting facts for you guys to consider. The first one is The Graduate. We all know and love. So Anne Bancroft was only six years older than Dustin Hoffman when that movie was made. And she's presented as being a good generation and potentially a half away from him. So he was 30, she was 36. The average Bond girl is 14.2 years younger than her co-star. The Hollywood earnings for women, so the highest paid actresses, happens in their lifetime around 34 to 39, while the men's peak earnings happen at 51 And there's no rapid decline after that. In 1992, Sigourney Weaver was paid $4 million to return for Alien 3. The same year, Harrison Ford was paid $9 million for Patriot Games. Those films were budgeted roughly the same, and they earned roughly the same. Patriot Games was basically like a new property. Alien 3 was the third in a series of movies that had made huge amounts of money. American Hustle, Jennifer Lawrence and Amy Adams were offered 7% of the gross. Their male co-stars, Bradley Cooper, Jeremy Renner and Christian Bale, were offered 9 Jeremy Renner is no bigger a draw than Jennifer Lawrence or Amy Adams. So why is this happening? I really wanted to get to the bottom of it, and and this is all I could find. First of all, the majority of films that are big money earners are action pictures, and they generally feature men. The second one is the majority of executives in a position to buy films are men. The third thing I heard, and this came from Lisa Kudrow, she believes that agents do not fight for bigger salaries for, for women, but they fight for them for men, for whatever reason. But none of these excuses fully satisfy, so we must conclude that there is a gross gender prejudice in Hollywood and that it's still going on. And the other thing that recently came out was that Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, they made headlines when they commented that they were being paid the same amount as their uh, supporting actor co-stars Sam Waterston and Martin Sheen in Grace and Frankie, even though they're clearly the draw and have far more scenes, and they're the reason that you watch the show. Uh, I mean, look, on average, women in America get paid 78 cents for every dollar that men earn but in hollywood it's something like 48 cents so it's really really discouraging yeah i mean it's and it's obviously that those kinds of trends aren't just in hollywood or in films they're like in across industry we see the same thing and there's no sort of straight answer i don't think there's been lots of things thrown around some of which you've mentioned but i guess the fact that the working world was designed by men so the whole system of work is a male system Mm. Um, and I guess women have been indoctrinated not to fight in some ways too. So, you know, perhaps those women that are seeing that as ridiculous and are fighting are seen more as, I don't know, an outlier to their counterparts. Like, why would you try to say that you're worth any more? And then that can kind of reinforce this kind of sense that, oh, maybe I'm not worth as much. You know what I mean? I think there's lots of psychological kind of... And deeply historical patterns that are very hard to break. I feel like um, also the important roles for women mm. are such a, a, a much lower percentage than they are for men. Mm. And so until that changes, it's going to be difficult to get the... To demand the same. Yeah, and certainly Brian Murphy, who created Feud, and he created 
the American crime story, who's a producer on American Horror Story, has created a group called Half. Any TV show that he produces, the idea of Half is that at least half of the directors of the episodes of those TV shows will be female. And at the moment in TV it's 17% and in movies it's 7% are female. I believe it was American Horror Story Season 6 had six of its ten directors were women, Feud, uh, has three episodes directed by Murphy. Four of the eight episodes are directed by women. So that's something that he's doing a movement towards. And I think until you get those particular roles of where power is attached to these roles as mm. producer, as director, even as the head of a studio, when those roles start going to women, then women's stories women's films will be not necessarily women's films but films with women will be mm. written that are far more important or as important as films that are written for male actors yeah. until that there is some kind of parity in that the higher roles for women then it's going to be difficult to adjust that pay mm. discrepancy and this argument is explored in feud in the character of pauline who's robert aldrich's mm. secretary and some of the most uh, heartbreaking scenes in feud so far have been the relationship between Pauline and Aldrich, Pauline and Crawford, and Pauline and Mamacita. <laughs> Mamacita. <laughs> Where she has, and, and this didn't really happen. She's a fictional character, but Pauline represents so many Girl Fridays who would basically be the kind of engineer behind the men who would get everything sorted the way we see Pauline doing whatever happened to Baby Jane. And she had, in the show, she has a script called The Black Slipper, which she's written and which she wants to direct. And she wants to ask Crawford to star in it. And she has this scene where she asks Crawford to be in it. And Crawford says, I did you the service of not reading it. Your first chance is not going to be my last chance. And it just represents this impasse. Both women are understandable on, on either side of the fence. And it just shows the complexity and the impasse of of where women were at, how they were kind of in this locked-in state. And it shows, too, I think, how even women couldn't support women. Yeah. Even a woman of Joan Crawford's status was not able to use that status to support another woman. And I think we still see that now as well, that sometimes women are just as harsh critics of women, if not harsher than men. Even though she's not competing with this person for a role, in fact, she's being offered a role. But to her, it's not a serious offer. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of a joke. It's a dream. I mean, she's not turning her down because they're in competition. No, she's turning her down because she... Well, she knows the, the state of play. Yeah. Anyway, that's just sort of, this is the environment in which you're working, so this is not going to work. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Susan Sarandon is 70 years old. Yeah, she's yeah. playing 54-year-old Betty Davis. She looks amazing. Jessica Lange's 67, playing... 58-year-old Crawford. Oh, I'm, nice. no, I'm going to say 58. Nice. And Jessica Lange's obviously had recent success in American Horror Story and also she was in HBO's Grey Gardens. I guess this kind of shows you what Feud is talking about. You've got these two Academy Award-winning actresses, Jessica Lange for Blue Sky, Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking, who are playing two Academy Award-winning actresses who can't get roles. Mm. And it's especially driven home when immediately following Baby Jane, you see Betty Davis playing a TV role, Perry Mason, in Feud. The best thing about Feud is the commentary on ageism and roles for women. And it's doing such a good job of showing that. The other thing that I love about Feud and that I didn't expect, when I first heard this property was happening, I thought, oh, it's going to be one of these things that really plays off the bitchiness of the two women. It's going to be this big catty thing. I'm going to love it. But what I didn't expect was that it would have so much sympathy for both women. I mean, it starts with Catherine Zeta-Jones as Olivia de Havilland saying feuds are about pain. 
And that has resonated through the entire show. There's extreme pain and sadness in watching these these two women do this. I mean, one of the most touching moments of the whole show was in that first episode when they both saw the dailies and they both cried. But the show had done so well at setting them up that you knew the tears were for different reasons. Crawford was crying to see herself looking so old and worn out and unglamorous. And that Davis was crying because she saw herself dying in that scene where she put her hands over her face. She saw the end coming. But with Olivia de Havilland's comment, I took that a bit differently when she sort of talked about feud being about pain because we know that conflicts between people only happen if there's a meaningful relationship between them. So I felt like she was also commenting on the fact that these two women were actually so connected and there was a strong relationship there and that's really the only way you can ever have mm. a feud or a conflict is because there's something there to fight for uh, or something only, connecting them. And I mean, it's the only way that you can feel pain, otherwise you don't care. Yeah, otherwise it'd, just, it'd be fine. There'd yeah. be no bitterness, there'd be no nothing. There's that extraordinary episode about their children where we see both women have these real fractious relationships with their kids. Betty Davis with her daughter on the phone is yeah. so sad. And then Jessica Lang not wanting to sign Christina's card and then what, and then signing it when the two twins have gone to the bathroom, not wanting them to see. And then at the end of that episode, they both walk out of their dressing rooms at the same time and they just kind of stare at each other. And at that point, there's no friendship there. There's a lot of enmity. So they don't talk, but you just get this feeling of like, oh my God, talk to each other. You're both going through exactly the same thing, but they don't. You know, Betty Davis takes off her glasses, puts them back on, and then the two women walk away. Oh, it's a missed opportunity. And it's so, so sad because they were so lonely in the fact that they had screwed up these relationships with their children. And you're right, there was real connective tissue there. Mm. One of the most beautiful moments for you, Cass, and I, because I remember we gave each other a look, was when um, George Cooker saying, you're bigger than this. And she looks at him and she kind of, her bottom lip trembles and she says, I'm not. She knows to what lows she has gone and that it's ridiculous. And that she's going to carry it out anyway when there's still chance to back out. I had a question about whatever happened to baby Jane that I didn't quite understand. So I just thought I'd put it to you too. You know where she says you could have been better than all of them, they just didn't love you enough? Baby Jane, she's having one of her breakdowns. She says, you could have been better than all of them. Yeah. Just didn't love you enough. What is she talking about? I thought she was talking about the audiences. Her fans didn't love her enough? Yeah, that they forgot, that they let go, or that when she started to have a film career, her films weren't very successful. Some of them didn't even get released in the United States. <laughs> Every chance you get. I mean, I'm surprised isn't sung Whatever Happened to Baby Jane yet. I want to. Um, no, I would sing I've Written a Letter to Daddy. Yeah, true. Yeah. Go on. I've written a letter to Daddy. <laughs> You're like coaxing me on like a stage mark. You have to do it. This is the end His of the episode. His address is heaven above. <laughs> I've written, dear daddy, we miss you and wish you were with us to love. Instead of a stamp by blue kisses, the postman says that's best to do. I've written a letter to Daddy saying I love you. <laughs> you gotta, I hope that's the end of the episode. <laughs> 
Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was released in 400 theatres on Halloween, which is a great date for it, October 31, 1962. And on a budget of just under $1 million, it grossed $9.5 million. So very successful. Especially $9.5 million was a lot at the time. Of course, Joan stopped them from getting an extra million by taking away Betty's Best Actress award. Crawford went on to make Straight Jacket, which grossed $2.2 million, and I Saw What You Did, which grossed $1 million with William Castle, and Davis made Dead Ringer, which grossed $1.2 million with Paul Henreid, and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which grossed $4 million with Baby Jane's Robert Aldrich. Feud debuted on March 5th, 2017 on the FX Network, and the first episode was seen by 2.26 million people on its launch day and 5.17 million people in its first three days. Subsequent episodes have been successful, garnering audiences between 1.06 and 1.36 million first-day viewers, and in today's age of binge streaming and syndication, many more viewers will follow. And the series has been renewed for a second season to deal with Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Critical reception for Feud has been excellent, based on 73 reviews. The show holds a fresh rating of 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone said, The show hits home because the story is a lot bigger than just a couple of movie stars. It's a surgical dissection of American fame, all the brutality and blood behind the dirty business of dreams. Melanie McFarland of Salon said, For all of its venom and sting, Feud is a strangely loving tribute to the stars and films of yesteryear, so much that one may wish these great ladies were still alive to see what a glorious work they inspired. Daniel Diodario praised the actresses, saying, Sarandon seems better cast, sharing Davis' enviable bone structure and her ability to exhale a one-liner like cigarette smoke, and yet it's Lang who'll make you swoon. Baby Jane was also critically successful, holds a 92% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. James Powers of The Hollywood Reporter loved the film's fascinating and unusual nature, saying Robert Aldrich's production for Warner Brothers is a lurid melodrama of hate, revenge and murder, a high-class horror film in the Hitchcock vein with virtuoso performances from Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and moments both searing and poignant. Variety were likewise praising of the performances, saying... Although the results heavily favour Davis, it should be recognised that the plot of necessity allows her to run unfettered through all the stages of oncoming insanity. Crawford gives a quiet, remarkably fine interpretation of the crippled Blanche, held in emotionally by the nature and temperament of the role. She has to act from the inside and has her best scenes with the maid and those she plays alone. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times disagreed and gave a mostly negative review saying the feeble attempts that Mr Aldrich has made to suggest the irony of two once idolised and wealthy females living in such depravity and the pathos of their deep-seated envy having brought them to this wash out very quickly under the flood of sheer grotesquerie. There is nothing particularly moving or significant about these two. Nevertheless, Baby Jane, a horror film, garnered Academy Award nominations for Best Actress for Betty Davis, Best Supporting Actor for Victor Bueno, Best Black and White Cinematography and Best Sound, and it won for Norma Kosh's costumes in Best Black and White Costume Design. All right, guys, you ready for the quiz? Ready. All right, who wants to go first? Whoever you pick. All right, Cass, you can go first. A TV remake of Baby Jane was made in 1991 and starred which two real-life actor sisters? Um, what year? 1991. Two real-life actor sisters in 91. Nah, I'll give it to Damien. Um... No idea. <laughs> no, I do. I do have an idea. I just don't know their names. I have no idea. 
It's uh, they're very famous sisters. These two, <laughs> um, and I've completely forgotten their name. I know Veronica, Valerie. One starts with a V. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It was um, it was. <laughs> Vanessa and Lynn Redgrave. Redgrave. (laughs) Redgrave. And by the way, that remake is available on YouTube and I watched it the other day and it is horrible. I I didn't even know there was a remake. So that's two podcasts in a row that we've done where they've done a TV remake. Who should have done it? Which two real life sisters? I think you two should have done it. (laughs) After that performance, Luke. Could be our comeback. I'm definitely Baby Jane. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the crippled (laughs) sister. Which three, and I'll be happy if you get two, Damien, old Joan Crawford, Betty Davis films are used in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Oh, crap. Uh, Shit. Autumn Leaves. It's not used in Baby Jane. That was five years earlier. It would have looked the same. Yeah, but I figured because it was Robert Aldrich. Um, They were both from the early 30s. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to get them. Okay. Yep. Ex-Lady and Sadie McKee. Oh, Kaz, (laughs) that is one point for you. Um, Yeah, and the other one was Parachute Jumper, which was another uh, Davis film. Christina Crawford's damaging tell-all book, Mummy Dearest, was published in 1978, uh, just after her mother's death. Betty Davis's daughter, Beatie Hyman, who's in Baby Jane, published a similar book in 1985 while Davis was still alive. What was the name of that book? And read it, but I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Damien, to you. I can't think of it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It was My Mother's Keeper. That's a dumb title. Because <laughs> I think it's <laughs> yeah. dumb because you didn't get it. It should be memorable, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> what was one of the interesting tricks Betty Davis did to create the garish makeup effect we see in Baby Jane? An interesting trick. Well, let's just say when you think of the stories about the makeup, this is the story that you think about. I didn't know there were stories about the makeup. She obviously painted her face a lot. Cass? Well, Betty Davis always said that she looked like she never took her makeup off and that every she just put more on every That's exactly oh. right. So every day she would just not really wash her face properly and just put more and more on. Yeah. At least the shoot only lasted 15 days. Uh, Cass, uh, what play was Betty Davis performing in when Crawford came backstage to offer her the Baby Jane project? Oh. Nah. Betty Davis was performing in... Oh, I, I read it and I yeah, forgot. I can see the billboard, but... Okay, it was Night of the Iguana. Much is made in feud of Crawford having one Oscar and Davis having two. How many Oscars do Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon have and what for? They have oh. one Oscar each. Jessica Lang for Blue Sky, Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking. Cass, you want to take this from him? Jessica Lang has two. She does. It's for a movie that you both love. Is it? Yes. Hush. No. (laughs) (laughs) So which one did you say that she had? Blue Sky. And she won Best Supporting, this was before Blue Sky, for a film that you both love. It's a comedy. But when you think of this comedy, you don't necessarily think of her, even though she's great in it. <gasps> a comedy that we both love. What comedy do we both love? I don't know. And it's got Dustin Hoffman in it. Tootsie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. So um, Cass is on like three and you're on zero. 
How old was Victor Bueno when he died? Oh, for fuck's sake. 42. 43. Oh. You should get that. Yeah. We'll give it to him. Give it. <laughs> Throw him a bag. That's a pretty good guess, man. Yeah, I'm dying of a heart attack at 43. Really I was really endeared to him during Feud. Like just the way that they portrayed his, you know, creativity on set mm. and everything. I was like, oh, it just made me think more about him than I had when I just watched him. Yeah, no, he's a great actor. He was really talented. Like, he gives a great performance in that film. Well, I think that wraps up this episode of Cellular Junkies. We hope you enjoyed this Baby Jane feud breakdown and that you'll join us again in May. I'd like to thank our special co-host for joining us. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for having me. And uh, wish Cameron all the best with his recovery. Until then, I'd like to leave you with this sage piece of advice. Don't ever serve up a dead rat for lunch. Even in jest, people are liable to take it the wrong way. Down the street, although world is lying at her feet, there was no one at the sweet. Whatever happened to baby Jane? I see her old movies on TV, and they are always a thrill to me. My daddy says I can be just like her. Oh, how I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I were. Whatever happened to baby Jane? grow up. She just grew old. She was waiting for that big day that her daddy said would come. That's what happened to baby Jane. Here's what happened to baby Jane. She thought the world was at her feet. That is what her daddy said was true. But her daddy didn't always know. Your daddy doesn't always know So for the past 40 years Her life has been nothing but tears Her daddy said something great was to be And she hoped and hoped and hoped and she hoped And that's what happened to baby Jane That's what happened to Jane What really happened to Jane And that's what happened to Jane What really happened to Jane I'm sure you must get very bored by the, the constant fiction that you and Bette Davis are positively daggers drawn. She'd draw. kill you if she heard you say Bette.